You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Last Monday in chapel, we had a little celebration, a reminiscence about the great revival that Asbury had in 1970. We had old Dr. Hunter was talking about not repressing the truth in your heart. And Mrs. Becky Brown gave an account of what happened to her classmates when Holy Spirit took charge of their lives and flowed through them, which reminded me and which confirms that Ashbury College is a holiness college, a holiness institution. Now, I admit we are also, and not incidentally, academic, and I am proud My colleagues and I are proud of our professional integrity, high academic standards, the good record of our graduates. I acknowledge as well that we are a private liberal arts residential college. We embrace with great pleasure those hallmarks of education in the Western world used to be typical of every college in the the world was a private uh, residential liberal arts college. I I just thought of something, in that connection, Asbury has another advantage, you visitors were supposed to sell Asbury. Kind of a clumsy way of phrasing, by Asbury. <laughs> but Asbury does look like a college, has that advantage. Kind of a, kind of a nice little place, kind of neat. I think, and is anybody from, I shouldn't ask this, is anybody from development here? They, they're off raising money. They haven't any time for this, I understand. But if any of you know any of them, tell them I've got a great idea how to make money this summer, every summer. Rent the place out to Hollywood to make movies about college life in the 1950s. Get a few faculty cars and park them around the semicircle, it'll be perfect. (laughs) So I admit that we are a private liberal arts college. We are a Christian college, and we do embrace with joy that this is a Christian endeavor. But the particular facet on the jewel of divine revelation that we feel called to polish and reveal to the world is holiness, the doctrine of holiness. The doctrine of holiness is complicated and profound and never exhaustible topic. It is profound scriptural and theological truth. We have an annual holiness conference. Uh, This year, uh, the speaker will be Dr. Victor Hamilton. I rejoice to tell you that. I look forward to that. That will be an entirely worthwhile experience. I know that that will be an entirely worthwhile experience. The same reason I know that a symphony by Beethoven will be worth listening to, because Dr. Hamilton has a great talent, a great gift. I look forward to that already. We have Holiness Conference. I mentioned that to say we have a Holiness Conference every year, and even so, every year, with great speakers and great minds, great scholars, the topic is never entirely exhausted. It is never plumbed to its depth. It's never perfectly elucidated. A woman named Mildred Bangs Wincoop has written a book called uh, Theology of Love, The Dynamics of Westernism, and in this book, She says there are six fundamental elements, any one of which would take several bookshelves, six fundamental elements that have to be considered in any preliminary discussion of holiness. Morality, the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, purity, psychology, um, the witness of scripture, and Christian experience. Six elements in any, even the most rudimentary discussion of holiness, these six profound elements, bookshelves of material in each one. It's a serious, it is a profound, not complicated, but, but so many faceted and so old and so permeate scripture and theology as to be almost elusive, almost beyond our grasp. It is so exciting, it is so serious, it is so attractive, it is so important. 
It is a serious doctrine. But are we not entitled? Are we not obliged in an institution like Asbury College, unlike the Salvation Army, that has holiness emblazoned on our very banners? Are we not entitled? Are we not obliged? Some, have you ever desired to just slow down, stop, get off, step aside, look back and ask, what does all this mean, this holiness stuff? What does holiness in the heart mean in the life? Or, put it this way, what are the details of holiness? I mean, how does it actually work? Because if there aren't details to holiness, there isn't holiness. Someone has said, very wisely, that in any human plan, the devil is in the details. Well, in any divine plan, the glory is in the details. If holiness doesn't work in detail, it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, it isn't true. Whatever holiness is, it is an active doctrine. So what are the details of holiness, the little things of holiness? I've always been really interested in details. I confess this is personal prejudice. I've always been interested in details. I was interested in details before I was converted. I've been interested ever since I can remember having an interest. I've been interested in how things work and why they work. Even before this was a fashionable, the most fashionable, the most modern interpretation of history is to be concerned with day-to-day -day routine kinds of things. It's the newest way to look at history. Even when I was a boy, I understood, I was becoming interested in history. I thought then that you really cannot empathize with the past and therefore you can't understand the past unless you understand details. How did things work? Why did they work? You talk about suburban, uh, sur suburbanization, suburb, making America into a suburb. Making America into a suburb in the 1950s. Well, you can say that, but you don't have the complete picture until you think about what the automobiles were like. They were heavy, and they didn't steer so well as cars do today. They got terrible gas mileage. They did not have seatbelts, and they boiled over if you sat with the engine running in traffic very long. You talk about life in the 1950s, but what does that mean unless you know what the houses were like? They were different from houses now. They had white tile bathrooms, and they had screen doors. And, bad news, they didn't have VCRs. <laughs> Women used to wear hats and gloves and hose to go shopping. And men always wore hats no matter how hot it was. You know those little wire racks under your seats? They're not for books, they're hat racks. When this building was built in 1929 and up through the 50s, men wore hats every day, and so they had to have a hat rack under the seat, nothing to do with books. So I'm interested in details. What are the details of holiness? What are the little things of holiness? Well, first thing we have to know about the little things of holiness is they are social graces. A life committed to Jesus Christ, a heart and mind committed to him, a heart and mind turned over and controlled by him will act out. Holiness is a social theology. So the little things of holiness are social graces. That is, they are graces that are applied socially. Holiness working horizontally. In 2 Philippians, singing for joy in his imprisonment, the great apostle Paul says that we are to shine as lights in the world. And what is the virtue of light? It shines on our little path, our everyday little path. It was a great song. None of you have heard this song. But before the Second World War, you may be surprised to know, it was the single most popular gospel song in America. And it was the first gospel song to be recorded on a phonograph. It was called, it is still called, if ever you find it in an old songbook, Bright in the Corner Where You Are. Have any of you ever heard that? Bright, oh yes, Bright No Faculty, yes, <laughs> of course. <laughs> we know about these 1950s cars firsthand. <laughs> Bright in the Corner Where You Are. Well, that's what the little things of holiness are. Brighten the corner where you are, the details of holiness. What is the first detail of holiness? Seems to me the first 
detail of holiness is generosity. Be generous. Exhibit the gift of joy, the fruit of the spirit of joy. The Lord loveth a cheerful giver. Give your time, give your attention. <laughs> I'm going to do a favor for all subsequent speakers for the rest of this semester and maybe for years to come. I'm going to tell you <laughs> how many organ pipes there are. <laughs> It's like you can't count them when you get bored. <laughs> 65. How do I know that? <laughs> I, I, conf I confess. <laughs> one time, now I've been coming to chapel 25 years, one time, <laughs> back in 1974, my mind wandered. And I counted, so from now on, you have to listen because 65. <laughs> give of your time, give of your attention. Be gracious givers. Give of your talent, give of your resources. Be generous. Second, social grace, second little thing of holiness is generosity. As grateful as uh, generosity. <laughs> it's a good thing I have tenure. <laughs> I could look at my notes, except I can't see them. <laughs> Everybody else my age on the entire planet Earth has bifocals, do I? Oh, no. <laughs> but it's here, you see it there. If it's any consolation to you, it does have an end. <laughs> the second social grace is gratitude. Gratitude is the first response and the first responsibility of the Christian and more so, more particularly, more keenly for those who've experienced God's sanctifying power, to be grateful. Everything we have is a gift. Every good thing is an occasion clearly for joy. We are stewards of someone else's investment for everything we have. Be grateful. Be thankful. An inevitable consequence of gratitude is thoughtfulness. Thoughtfulness is a rare quality these days. Cultivate thoughtfulness. You can't imagine how precious, how welcome thoughtfulness is. And I, I should say something else. If you've got anything thoughtful or kind or grateful to do or say, do it now. Do not wait until some deed of kindness you can do. It's the second line of right in the corner where you are. Do it now. I'll give you a personal illustration. Last fall in October, the Salvation Army here arranged a little retirement for me from the little position I had in the Salvation Army. And uh, they had this uh, retirement. And people came from all over and, and were very kind. And most, the most encouraging things they said, the most gracious, affirming things about the little I'd done. My lands, I, I thought it was the best thing to hit the Salvation Army since the tambourine. <laughs> I'd have a statue to me at headquarters. I could hardly believe it was me they were talking about. And then I got up to say a, a few words, and it occurred to me, it's kind of like a funeral. You know... What a fine fella Ed was, or is. <laughs> if you've got anything, it really was very encouraging. It was very, seriously, now, it was a very affirming evening for me. If you've got any, much more so than it's going to be when I really am dead. Fat lot I'm going to care then what they've got to say. <laughs> Zero I'm going to care. So if you have anything kind, anything affirming, anything thoughtful to say or do, do it now. And then do it tomorrow and do it on. As long as the people around you are there to respond, that's the time to act. So the second response is, is gratitude. The third is courtesy. Defer to people whom you respect. Don't be late and don't be impatient. 
Patience is an especially noble virtue because it combines two other virtues, courtesy and kindness. Now, those of you who know me are going to say that my standing here and saying this is proof that God does not strike down hypocrites. <laughs> if you needed proof, I stand before you. Proof that he does not, it's not the way he generally, generally works. Because impatience is a besetting sin for me. It's an absence of that virtue. I struggle with that, but I do struggle with it. I recognize, I, I don't pretend to embody it every time, but I do recognize that it is a particularly attractive virtue and a particularly necessary result of a truly sanctified life. To be patient, to wait with courtesy and kindness and affection, not to be drawn into the notion that because you are obliged to wait a little bit that some, there's been some... Uh, the universe is out of focus, or there's been some great injustice. Be patient. The fourth, my personal favorite, is be nice. Now, nice is hard to define, but it is unmistakable when you find it in other people. Nice is also very hard to identify nice with holiness, exclusively with holiness. It's, it's not possible to identify nice exclusively with Christianity. But niceness is an inevitable outgrowth. It is an inevitable consequence. It is the first and most attractive and most reassuring hint. And with prolonged exposure, the hint becomes proof that you are dealing with a sanctified life. Now, I will tell you somebody who's nice, somebody you all know. Reverend Stuart Smith is a nice human being. I knew him when he was a boy here. He's a nice boy. He's a nice grown man. He's going to be nice in heaven. Nice is a great quality. You know, you think our grand schemes. Let's start with the little and work to the great. How can we claim? How I thought about this a hundred times at Asbury College. How a thousand times. Thinking about it right now. Thousand and one. <laughs> How can we claim? that our hearts and our minds are committed to the sovereign love and mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we're not even nice. I mean, we're going to save the lost souls in Paraguay. We're going to save the lost souls in the Tonga Islands. We are going to save the lost souls in the inner city. We are going to save the environment. We're going to save the minky whale. We're going to save the whatever it is, owl, white owl, spotted owl. We're going to save the snail darter. We can't even save our relationships. We're not even nice. And, and drawing on what I've said earlier, how can we claim, how can we believe ourselves to be sanctified and expect other people to believe our, our, us to be sanctified if, never mind we're not nice, if we are grumpy, grudging, demanding, ungrateful, abrupt, late, impatient? The last of these is kindness. Immortal Paul tells us in 4th Ephesians, be kind and tender-hearted one to another. Last and greatest of my list of the little things of holiness is kindness. Uh, Samuel Brengel was a noted Salvation Army officer and a holiness preacher. I would just guess that he's probably the only Salvation Army holiness preacher or writer that's ever heard of outside the Salvation Army. Some of you may have heard of Brengel. He wrote little devotional books. Well, Brengel had a, a very sweet-spirited little analogy he used to explain kindness. Uh, drawn from 1 Corinthians the second, uh, 12th chapter, where uh, uh, the Holy Spirit says that we are of one body, even Christ. All members of one body, even Christ. He used his little hand analogy. He said that when this hand is hurting, this hand does not set itself up as, aha, uh -huh, what you deserved, careless left hand. That will teach you to put yourself in the fire. Do I care? Not at all. No. What does the right hand, oh, poor left hand. <laughs> Poor wounded left hand, I care, I'm here, trust me, you can always, I'll do the work while you rest. <laughs> hand analogy. <laughs> I like it. 
I'm sure Brenda would be gratified at your affirmation. <laughs> Bouncing around in heaven in glory. They like your hand analogy, Commissioner. Socrates said, be what you want to seem. Now, if Socrates had been led by the Holy Spirit, he would have added that being what you want to seem will help you be what you want to be. That striving to behave righteously assists you towards commitment that is the right thing to do. That acting on the basis of faith increases your faith. If you think about the way the gifts of the Spirit are arranged in Galatians, they start with love. Wesley believed that love is an act of the will, and so do I. It has nothing to do with emotion. Emotion could be a very pleasant, and overwhelmingly pleasant, adjunct to love, but it's not necessary. Love is an act of the will, a disposition of the will in response to the Holy Spirit. Start with love, and faith follows along. Faith is down the list, I think seven uh, further along. Faith follows. Acting on love, doing these kind and thoughtful, sweet-spirited things, relies on your faith and strengthens your faith. It draws from faith, and it strengthens faith. Those are the five simple things of holiness. I want to close with a quotation. Uh, uh, this is it, I suppose. I'm completely venturing into the thin ice of career self-destruction. But I think this little quote would be a better motto for Asbury College than religio eriticio. <laughs> not that I have not great admiration for people that know Latin, really. It's a, it's a, it's a noble language and, and, and full of riches. But I, I like this better, this little quote. It's from a man named uh, Folks Johnson. It was his last name, I think it's last name. He was a professor at Oxford University at the turn of the century, and a new, they call him Don's, a new Don, a new professor was joining the staff, and folks, Johnson was uh, giving him a word of fatherly advice, and this was his fatherly advice. I want to leave this with you. You remember nothing else from the chapel, remember this? I personally think it'd be a great motto for our college, and this is it. Folks, Johnson said to the new professor, he said, for heaven's sakes, don't try to be clever. We're all clever here. Try to be kind. And I will give you another quote from Queen Victoria. Since you've been so attentive and kind, and since the program's at an end, you have our leave to go. Yeah.